0: arsenal for democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or apple and stitcher and we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy for three dollars a month the show is recorded and produced by me bill humphrey in newton massachusetts our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. follow us on facebook or at afd radio on twitter the show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own this man
1: is your land this man is my Short the Redwood Forest, the Gulf Stream
0: waters, this land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 445, recorded on Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, we're talking about mine reclamation bonding, Superfund sites, cleanups of that nature, uh, which originate in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, Rachel, we'll start with you. Can you talk to us about mining reclamation and pollution cleanup?
1: Yeah. So um, as strip mining for coal became more common in the 1930s, and the demand for coal during World War II spurred widespread mining with little regard for the environmental impact, the question of what to do with the land once all the coal was mined became unignorable. States did attempt to address the issue by placing their own regulations in place, such as requiring mining companies to post bonds to fund land reclamation after mining is completed, but laws were inconsistent from state to state. Mining companies who didn't like the regulations would simply move operations to states with less stringent laws on the books. Meanwhile, the problem continued to grow, and by 1973, a whopping 60% of American coal came from strip mining. In the mid-1970s, Congress attempted to address the issue by sending federal mining regulation bills to President Gerald Ford, but Ford feared that regulating the industry would be bad for business, the economy, and the energy supply, so he vetoed any bills that crossed his desk. Jimmy Carter, on the campaign trail during the 1976 presidential race, made stump speeches in Appalachia promising to sign those bills. In January 1977, just a couple weeks after Carter was inaugurated, Representative Morris K. Udall, from Arizona, introduced a bill in the House, and on August 3, 1977, Carter signed into law the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977. So what is encompassed in the law? There are five major components involved. So first, performance standards. SMCRA and its implementing uh, implementing regulations set environmental standards that mines must follow while operating and achieve when reclaiming mined land. Uh, Mining companies can't just like half-ass the the reclamation project and then check a box and say, we're done and pick up stakes and leave. Um, Another major component is permitting. SMCRA requires that companies obtain permits before conducting surface mining. Permit applications must describe what the pre-mining environmental conditions and land use are, what the proposed mining and reclamation will be, how the mine will meet the SMCRA performance standards and how the land will be used after reclamation is complete. This information is intended to help the government determine whether to allow the mine and set set requirements in the permit that will protect the environment. The third major component is bonding. SMCRA requires that mining companies post a bond sufficient to cover the cost of reclaiming the site. This is meant to ensure that the mining site will be reclaimed even if the company goes out of business or fails to clean up the land for some other reason. The bond is not released until the mining site has been fully reclaimed and the government has, after five years in the East and 10 years in the West, found that the reclamation was successful. The fourth component is inspection and enforcement. SMCRA gives government regulators the authority to inspect mining operations and to punish companies that violate SMCRA or an equivalent state statute. Inspectors can issue notices of violation Which require operators to correct problems within a certain amount of time, levy fines, or order that mining cease altogether. Uh, Land restrictions. SMCRA prohibits surface mining altogether on certain lands such as in national parks and wilderness areas. It also allows citizens to challenge proposed surface mining operations on the ground that they will cause too much environmental harm. The SMCRA also created an abandoned mine land fund that was to be used for mines that were abandoned prior to the Act's passage in 1977. The law was later amended in 1990 to allow funds to be used for mine reclamation of mines abandoned after 1977. A tax on coal is used to pay for the fund. Originally, it was $0.31.5 per ton of surface mine coal, $0.15 per ton of underground mine coal, and $0.10 per ton of lignite. These rates have been reduced over time, and today the current rates are 22.4 cents per ton of surface mine coal, 9.6 cents per ton underground mine coal, and 6.4 cents per ton of lignite. So it's gone down actually quite a bit. Um, There is a split in where the fund goes. So 80% of the fund goes to the states with an approved reclamation program to fund their reclamation activities, and I'll explain more about that later. Um, The remaining 20% is used for emergencies, for example, landslides, land subsidence, and fires, and for high-priority cleanups in the two states without an approved reclamation program, which are Tennessee and Washington. Um, Abandoned mine land funds can also be used by the states to create insurance programs for homeowners who may be affected by land subsidence caused by underground mining. SMCRA uses a cooperative federalism approach to enforcement, As long as state programs meet or exceed the federal standards and have the resources to administer and enforce their programs, the states are allowed to run their own programs, i.e. issue permits and inspect mines. As stated previously, all but two states with active coal mines have approved state programs. In Tennessee and Washington, as well as on Indian reservation land, the Office of Surface Mining performs all regulatory functions. The federal government also is required to regulate surface coal mining on federal lands, and these federal lands include 60% of coal reserves in the West, but they are allowed to enter into cooperative agreements with states with approved programs and the state uh, performs those regulatory functions. In 1981, Hodel v. Virginia Surface Mining and Reclamation Association, Inc., um, a group of coal producers tried to challenge the SMCRA on the grounds that it violated the 10th Amendment. The Supreme Court ruled that it did not violate the Commerce Clause, and it didn't interfere with states' function of regulating land use. Um, One major weakness of how the act is enforced by state-run programs is the allowance of mining companies to hold their assets as bonds, which is known as self-bonding. When mining companies declare bankruptcy, they can no longer pay for reclamation efforts as required by law. As of 2016, mining companies have put up $3.7 billion in assets in self-bonds. One company, Peabody Energy, held 1.47 billion in self-bonding liabilities when they declared bankruptcy in April of 2016. So they they can virtually give themselves a, a loophole that requires that they don't have to purchase the bond from a third-party bonding agency. And this seems pretty shady. Um, it it kind of gives them a, a trapdoor. They can just declare bankruptcy much like Michael Scott in the Office, and pretty much slip away from their their responsibilities in mine reclamation efforts. So it, that doesn't really seem like a great loophole to exist. And I don't know if anybody's looking into closing that loophole, um, but it seems like a pretty big, pretty big loophole to to have hanging around. Um, so, what does mine reclamation look like? When mining ends, the reclamation stage begins. Firstly, operators must return the land to its approximate original contour or grade the land for a quote unquote, higher and better post mining land use that is included in the mining permit application. The dominant approach to mine reclamation is the forestry reclamation approach. Under this approach, forests are used to rehabilitate the land. First, at least four feet of good rooting material must be laid down made of topsoil, weathered limestone, and or the best available materials. Then the material is graded to create a non-compacted growth medium. Finally, ground cover and trees are planted on the land. Successional species that are chosen for wildlife and soil stability are planted first, then commercial crop trees are planted. And over time, the land heals itself, basically, and uh, new species start moving in. New animal species start moving in, and the land comes to resemble what it looks like pre-mining operations. When forests are not appropriate for the local climate, mining lands can be converted to rangeland instead. Under this approach, the topsoil is still built up and graded, but rather than trees being planted, native successional plant species are planted instead, such as native grasses. Livestock are introduced to complete the ecosystem and fill the niche that native grazers occupy. As the ecosystem matures, native animals may either return naturally or through reintroduction efforts. As native species proliferate, livestock numbers can be reduced or they may be removed entirely. So those are a couple of the um, approaches to mine reclamation and how the land is used post mining operations.
0: Obviously, a lot of that's pretty theoretical. Yes. I mean, we've certainly heard bits and pieces about that on the Trillbillies podcast out of the eastern Kentucky mining regions. Um, You know, there's a lot of loopholes in what you just described there. Things like and or best available materials, um, approximate original contour or grade the land for a higher and better post mining land use etc. There's a lot of ways of kind of getting around it and saying, oh, well, it's not good as new, but it's different and better and fine, and you can build something on it, and which is always a little dicey as well.
1: Yeah, I think topsoil growth is a long and difficult project. And um, the way forestry reclamation approach is described, it, it makes it sound very easy and a quick and easy process when it it really isn't. And creating topsoil that's um, erosion-proof, planting plants that can hold on to the soil and prevent um, topsoil erosion or flash flooding or drainage issues um, is actually quite difficult.
0: Verging on impossible. Yeah. All right, well, on that happy note, let's progress our way over to Superfund sites, which is a non-mining category of environmental cleanup, mitigation, and remediation that also doesn't go that well. So what was the problem? Well, highly toxic industrial plants or their off-site toxin dump sites with air, water, and ground contamination were beginning to close down in the 1970s from a combination of growing environmental safety pressure as the effects on nearby human populations were becoming clearer, And we've also talked on other episodes about how this era saw the beginning of global economic pressures to close down certain factories in the U.S. altogether. So, what is to be done when a company pulls up stakes or shutters completely and files for bankruptcy, leaving behind a highly contaminated piece of land or nearby waterway filled with chemicals that will never break down or dissipate? Obviously, there's a number of things you could potentially do in that situation, but let's talk about the solution that did get selected. The U.S. government opted to pass a law creating a so-called superfund, which could be used to clean up and mitigate these major post-industrial contamination sites, and it would be funded through a combination of taxes on certain categories of polluter companies, especially oil and chemicals, and contributions by the U.S. government on its own. Sometimes you see this referred to as taxpayers, but obviously we know it's a little goofy to talk about taxpayers directly when you're talking about U.S. government funding for things, but anyway... Uh, The idea here was that if a company refused to take responsibility for a site after closing a plant, or even the company no longer existed in many cases, there would still be a source of some money and a responsible authority for trying to clean it up. The law was one of the final Carter administration things. It was signed in December 1980 as he was leaving office. It was really weak to begin with, and it was immediately undermined by Reagan and then subsequently by congressional Republicans in the Clinton years and presumably also Clinton's administration himself sometimes. Uh, From the mid-90s until the Biden administration, over 25 years later, there were no taxes at all on the polluting companies to pre-fund their own anticipated later cleanups. The government funding by the early 2000s was the only source of funds at all, and that was wholly insufficient to the number of sites and scale of the cleanups needed. Now, as an aside, sometimes the EPA spends money to relocate an entire community of hundreds of families away from a Superfund site because of how badly contaminated it is. However, according to the uh, EPA history of the law on their own website, which will uh, be—I'm about to quote from that extensively, but it will also be linked from the notes, as always, with uh, arsenalfordemocracy.com when this episode goes live— Uh, According to that EPA history of the law, relocations of communities away from Superfund sites were never made from black communities before 2009, and in that particular case, the first time they did that, there was a neighborhood of Pensacola, Florida at a former wood treatment facility, and it was decided that nothing could really be done about the soil except to dig it up temporarily, build a containment cell, and then put the soil back in and leave it there permanently toxic so the people had to be moved instead. But in any case, let's go through this EPA history. I'm going to quote some abridged quotes from their very long history page on the Superfund law so you can understand the trajectory of things and some of the major points. I'm not going to go into the complete background of the various incidents that were happening in the 1970s, some of which you'll be familiar with, but in any case... It's easy to forget that there was a time in the United States when EPA lacked the legal authority to clean up hazardous waste sites like Love Canal, New York, or to respond to emergencies such as train derailments involving dangerous chemicals. Even though the EPA had been established for 10 years, it was not until December 11, 1980, that President Jimmy Carter signed into law the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, which is sometimes referred to as CERCLA, but more commonly as Superfund. This historic new statute gave EPA the authority to clean up uncontrolled hazardous waste sites and spills, end quote. So let's go through the timeline here. So in the congressional term of 1979-1980, the House and Senate committees held extensive hearings on the dangers posed by toxic waste dumps, and major bills were introduced to create a super fund for dealing with these dangers. Eventually, these were passed through both houses of Congress, as we said, by the end of 1980, after the 1980 election, and it was signed into law. In 1980, uh, toxic waste burst into flames at a waste storage facility in Elizabeth, New Jersey, sending a thick black plume of smoke and ash over a 15-mile area and raising fears of widespread chemical contamination. That fire burned for 10 hours as state officials issued an environmental advisory closing schools and urging residents to close all doors and windows And remain indoors. As I said, Congress then subsequently that year passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, CERCLA, commonly known as Superfund, to address the dangers of abandoned or uncontrolled hazardous waste dumps by developing a nationwide program for emergency response, information gathering and analysis, liability for responsible parties, and site cleanup. CERCLA also creates a trust fund, or super fund, to finance emergency responses and cleanups. And in 1982, the EPA published the Hazard Ranking System, HRS, as the principal mechanism for evaluating environmental hazards of a given site. HRS is a numerically-based screening system that uses information from preliminary investigations to assess the potential threats that sites pose to human health or the environment. The EPA also issued their first national guidelines for implementing CERCLA in its revised National Oil and Hazardous Substances Pollution Contingency Plan, NCP. The NCP sets forth the procedures that must be followed by the EPA and private parties in emergency response and cleanups. In 1983, using the HRS screening system, the EPA created the First National Priorities List, NPL, classifying 406 sites as the nation's priorities for cleanup under Superfund only sites on the npl may qualify for long-term remedial actions financed by the superfund and this npl is updated on a regular basis you'll notice there we're now several years into the existence of the law before they get to that point where they've put an initial 406 sites on this list and uh, that list has grown quite a bit longer in the uh, period since then without a enormous number of, uh, of progress the national priorities list, uh, is, is a smaller subset of, of particularly high priority sites. So that is currently up to 1300, uh, up from that 400. And so, uh, the overall list of federal Superfund sites are, are up to around 40,000 at this point. And, um, they do try whenever possible to get, uh, the company that is responsible to actually pay for cleaning it up. And, I guess the majority of the time they have been able to do that, but of course, a lot of the like high-priority ones are ones where there's uh, they either can't figure out how to force them to pay, or they don't exist anymore, or whatever. This gets back to the similar point that Rachel talked about when the mind control stuff was passed. Some of those mines had already been long abandoned by the time that got passed, and you still have to deal with the problem, um, and so on, so... The priorities list, though, which, as I said, is now up to 1,200 out of that 40,000-some-odd uh, total list, uh, they've even though these are the highest priority ones in the country, they've really, you know, I don't even think they've gotten into double digits of getting those off the list, which is not very encouraging. Let's continue through our Chronology, however, in 1984, concerns about gasoline and hazardous chemicals seeping from storage tanks and landfills into underground drinking water supplies prompted Congress to enact the hazardous and solid waste amendments to the RCRA, under which EPA makes an effort to uh, prevent such contamination and requires the treatment of hazardous waste prior to land disposal. This is something that you might be familiar with if you've ever had a gas station close near you. So that gets them down to some relatively small sites as opposed to the gigantic sites that most people think about. Although, again, some of these are, you know, relatively small sites that are really packing a punch in terms of toxicity. The other thing that happened in 1984 was the toxic gas release in Bhopal, India, uh, just because this sort of raised global awareness of this potential problem. That's a much longer story that we won't get into, especially as it's outside of the United States and therefore not the focus of the show. But the gist of it was that it raised public concern about explosions and leaks of toxic chemicals um, because 3,800 people died from just this toxic gas cloud moving through the city. This incident in the United States led to the passage of the first community right to know law under the 1986 Superfund amendments, basically Before that point, a lot of people didn't even know if there was a Superfund site near them that was potentially putting their life or health at risk. And after that, they did. Uh, In 1986 as well, uh, the Friedman property site in New Jersey became the first site actually deleted from the national priorities list. And again, that took them like five years to do, and then they haven't really made much progress since then. So that's not great. Uh, Congress, uh, as previously alluded to, passed the Superfund's Amendments and Reauthorization Act in 1986 as well, and that strengthened CERCLA's enforcement provisions and encouraged voluntary settlements instead of litigation. Oh, boy. It stressed the importance of permanent remedies and innovative treatment technologies— It increased state involvement in every phase of the Superfund program, and it increased the focus on human health problems posed by hazardous waste sites and encouraged greater citizen participation in how sites are cleaned up. Again, one of the big problems with these cleanup efforts is what do you do with the stuff that you're cleaning up? You have to remove it in a way that's not going to endanger anyone, and then you have to figure out how to do something with it. Or, as I mentioned with the Pensacola example, You sometimes can't really move it, and you've got to move the people instead, which is awful. But sometimes that's what has to happen because of the nature of these horrible sites. The amendments in 1986 also added certain specific provisions to CERCLA that were applicable to the cleanup of contaminated sites at federal facilities. Under CERCLA Section 120, federal agencies are required to comply with CERCLA in the same manner and to the same extent as non-governmental entities. Section 120 also required federal agencies to identify contamination affecting contiguous or adjacent property, compile information about contaminated sites at federal facilities, and enter the information into the federal agency hazardous waste compliance docket, promptly conduct preliminary assessments, remedial investigations, and feasibility studies at federal facilities." Obviously, this consideration of federally owned contamination sites would become even more important a few years later when U.S. military bases began closing down in significant numbers as the Cold War came to an end. Uh, I won't go further into that, but there was more legislation on that when that rolled around in the 90s. In 1993, the Brownfields Initiative was launched. This was to promote the redevelopment of abandoned, idle, or underused industrial and commercial sites when expansion or redevelopment was complicated by real or perceived environmental contamination. That's the kind of thing that ends up as a TV plot line where you find out that, you know, somebody got murdered because they were trying to get control of some real estate deal to acquire a former brownfield that was going to get cleaned up with federal money and then become a very lucrative property. I think there's like an elementary episode that was based on that. I'm sure there's other ones. So at least maybe people have heard of that one. In 1994, uh, finally, the uh, OSWER Environmental Justice Task Force was created to address concerns over the unequal distribution of environmental threats and disadvantaged and minority communities in EPA's waste programs. So again, this gets to this point. It's not just about the location of the cleanup site. It's also what do you do with the stuff you've now cleaned up? Is that getting put next to a community of minorities or low-income people or both, etc.? In 1996, cumulative Superfund cost recovery settlements exceeded $2 billion. Over 20% was secured in 1996 alone. This landmark accomplishment demonstrated the EPA's commitment under the Superfund reforms to promote enforcement settlements so responsible parties pay for cleanups. In 1999, the EPA announced the Superfund Redevelopment Initiative, which is a coordinated national program providing communities with the tools and information needed to turn cleaned-up Superfund sites into productive assets like office parks, playing fields, wetlands, and residential areas, so more emphasis there on the redevelopment side. Um, In 2000, after a 10-year exhaustive scientific study of the contamination of the Hudson River from polychlorinated biphenyls PCBs, the EPA proposed an extensive plan to clean up the river and protect public health. The cleanup would remove over 100,000 pounds of PCBs that would potentially contaminate people, fish, and wildlife through the food chain. In 2011, the National Bureau of Economic Research published a study titled Superfund Cleanups and Infant Health, which showed that investment in Superfund cleanups reduces the incidence of congenital abnormalities in infants by as much as 25% for those living within approximately 2,100 yards of a site. So that's a pretty wide area, pretty huge effect. Still hasn't prompted that much effort into funding these more so, we can actually get some movement on this, this list, especially those priorities lists. In 2014, of course, a, a study on a different angle by researchers at Duke and Pittsburgh universities found that once a site has all its cleanup remedies in place, nearby property values reflect a significant increase as compared to their values prior to the site being proposed for the NPL. Cleanups also increase tax revenue for local communities and state governments, including helping to create jobs during and after cleanup. For example, at 450 of the 800 sites supporting use or reuse activities, EPA found at the end of fiscal year 2014 that there were ongoing operations of approximately 3,400 businesses generating annual sales of more than $31 billion and employing more than 89,000 people. So there's a lot to be gained by spending some money on fixing these sites, And the question is, how do you get that money? How do you get that political will to do that? It seems like people just want to really free ride on the government here, uh, doing all of the work and spending all of the money on cleaning up these sites. I guess that's not fair completely because a lot of the sites do make the polluter pay. But those are, I think, usually the smaller ones that aren't on the priorities list. As we said, there's tens of thousands of them if you include all the little ones. In conclusion, though, regarding Superfund sites, Superfund cleanups are essentially the consequences of the industries that were started during the Second Industrial Revolution. A lot of the Superfund sites are those refineries and chemical plants of places like the New Jersey and Pennsylvania area that we talked about in our episodes on the 1870s and through the 1890s, things like Standard Oil or the synthetic chemical and dye companies and so forth that we've talked about. And Superfund was a... Early neoliberal solution to the problem implemented a century later. Um, it's not completely. I mean, it, it depends on how you define it, but I would argue that a system in which there is a public-private partnership to do cleanup, where a lot of the risk and and costs are foisted off onto the government without much in the way of, uh, you know, the, like the tax thing getting dropped. For example, I think it's hard to not look at that and conclude that that's the the dark uh, the dark neoliberalism there where they say oh yeah yeah no don't worry about it you get to make all the profits and all the benefits off of this and we'll just cover the costs uh on the public side rachel your thoughts on the superfund stuff
1: uh just from doing the reading before the we recorded the episode it seemed like a lot of the cleanup just like you said involves putting dirt or like contaminated dirt into concrete Pits and concrete-lined pits, and then just kind of capping it with concrete, which doesn't really solve the problem. It just kind of kicks the can down the road quite a bit. Um, as we know, a lot of chemicals are just kind of forever chemicals, and they're they're really hard to neutralize or convert to a a form that is less dangerous and toxic to humans and animals. So it, it I, while it's kind of the best available science to just put it in a concrete box. It it feels like it doesn't really accomplish much. Um, And you have to be really sure that your concrete is going to last quite a while. And it's not going to crack open at the next like seismic activity that happens and kind of restart the problem all over again, Um, leaking chemicals into the soil and, and water, water table. So um, it, it feels very insufficient to the task. It, it seems to me. And um, yeah, a lot, I think a lot of communities kind of feel that way too. They, they would prefer to have some sort of better solution for maybe neutralizing chemicals. But I think in a lot of cases that neutralization reaction just probably doesn't really exist yet or is not in a good, it hasn't been developed yet. So the best solution is just to kind of put it in a box and, and hope that, the box never cracks (laughs) and
0: and remember sometimes it's capped on site but sometimes it's moved off site so i know i've heard that one of the most cost effective ways of doing brownfield remediation in like the type of place that i live is to excavate for an underground parking garage for a new development project but that should raise some some uh question marks in your head as to where they are moving that soil that is being removed because they're moving it somewhere. And that gets to that point that I talked about earlier about the environmental justice component isn't just about where are the sites that are listed and are they getting cleaned up, which is a problem, but also secondarily. And then if it's being moved to somewhere else off site, where is that being moved to? Is that being moved to someplace that's also next to communities that are typically less empowered by the political process in the United States? So something to keep in mind and be aware of.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would say that um, yeah, the super fun cleanups are the consequences of the chemical industry that we talked about. And obviously, the the mining reclamation cleanup is a direct descendant, although the mines of the 1870s and 1890s were these underground mining sites. They begat the surface strip mining. So it's kind of the natural consequence of of the mining industry really steamrolling ahead through the Second Industrial Revolution into the, the twenty the twentieth century so yeah, yeah there kind
0: of- there might we might talk more about that we we haven't actually talked a huge amount about mining I don't think on the show um, it's something like the modern mining stuff I used to talk about like back when I was actually doing a radio show you know right at the beginning way back in the day twenty ten thereabouts because um, I found that really upsetting the mountaintop removal mining and so forth mm-hmm. but there's some of that nineteenth century mining that could be interesting to talk about. Some of it's more first industrial revolution, but there's definitely some second industrial revolution ones that are kind of good examples where you, you pull together all the different strands of things we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, I think we've talked about mines from the workers' perspective, from like a labor um, unrest perspective, but we haven't really talked about the mines themselves, I don't think.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Rachel, this was a grim one. Not much uplifting in that, but obviously better to get the things cleaned up when they do get cleaned up. Usually, asterisk. So thanks for coming on this week to talk about mine reclamation and Superfund sites.
1: Yeah, not not a cheery topic, but an important one to talk about. Clean
0: up, clean up, everybody everywhere. Clean up, clean up.